China has emerged as one of the 21st century's most consequential nations, making it more important than ever to understand how the country is governed. Welcome to Pekingology, the podcast that unpacks China's evolving political system. I'm Jude Blanchett, the Freeman Chair in China Studies at CSIS. And this week, I'm joined by David Bowman, the Jill McGovern and Stephen Muller Assistant Professor of China Studies and International Affairs at Johns Hopkins School of Advanced International Studies. Today, we'll be discussing insights from his recent paper, Picking Losers, How Career Incentives Undermine Industrial Policy in Chinese Cities. David, thanks for joining us. Thanks so much for having me, Judith. It's a real pleasure and honor to be here. I wanted to start by asking if you could give us a little bit of your research background and research interests. What formed and shaped your research interests? How did you get on this career trajectory? And how the heck did you end up to the point where you're doing studies on industrial policy? Sure. So in a slightly long answer, I guess I, my interest in China formed pretty early. I started studying Chinese in junior high in Western Massachusetts and just found it very interesting. I went to college then and was an economics major, but I still took courses on Chinese history. And then a course with Carl Riskin on sort of the political economy of China from Mao to Deng, I just found much more interesting than a lot of my econ courses. So following my bachelor's degree, I moved to China, moved to Beijing, and after some intensive language study, worked for a consulting firm, sort of advising Western companies, uh, European and American companies for the most part, uh, on their China policies. And I, I just found this fascinating. This was the mid-aughts. This was a dynamic time in China. China was changing so much. Regulations were changing so much. Uh, it was, you know, a lot of people, a lot of us who lived in China in the mid-aughts have a much more positive view, perhaps, of China than others who have lived there more recently. Uh, but I, what I found most interesting was the dynamism, how non-monolithic China was, right? Coming from outside, it seemed like China was this large party state. Being in China, so many things were happening, lots of local policies that we had to follow, all these local differences, bureaucratic challenges, factional debates, all of this I found really, really fascinating. So when I went to graduate studies, I searched for a program that had people focusing on a lot of this local politics and bureaucratic politics, as well as a strong econ requirement. And this was SICE. So I got to work with Mike Lampton, uh, who was one of the creators of you know, fragmented authoritarianism, which we might talk about a bit today. And SICE also had a strong econ requirement. So that really formed a lot of my early research interests. And then my dissertation looked at comparing different regions in China and career incentives and local growth at the county level based on a lot of field work and really, really got into that. Uh, and then I think the final thing that really shaped my interest was after my PhD, after postdoc, I went to the World Bank. I'd been at the World Bank as a short-term consultant, but I was a full-time economist there uh, after this postdoc and before coming back to SICE. And I think my time at the World Bank really had me start to look at China less as an individual case than as this sort of comparative middle-income economy facing a lot of the same challenges that other middle-income countries faces in terms of governance, rule of law changes to transition to a high-income economy. So from all this, I got really interested in central local relations, implementation challenges, China's broader governance challenges. And a lot of that has led now to China's large focus on industrial policy and how local governments are influential there. Just quickly, can you tell us, so this is a co-authored paper uh, with a colleague at the World Bank and then a colleague from uh, Renmin University. Can you just tell us a, a potted version of the origins of this paper and, and how, this, how the paper was, the research for this was completed? Sure. So this started as background work for a large World Bank paper, World Bank uh, report on China, uh, which came out after a lot of delay, I think two years ago. And the governance chapter that some of this was part of was totally truncated and removed uh, at the behest of our partners in China. Uh, but this came together actually through someone uh, at the World Bank, uh, Jurgen Blum, who really should have been more involved in the paper, but had to do more at the bank. But he got us all together. Uh, I was still a consultant there on this larger report. 
Um, and uh, Zhang Chiong at Renda, at Renmin University, had access to this great data set and was really interested in a lot of these issues. Um, and, and Shun Yan was, was at, the, at the bank then as well. So we all came together and started working on this, and then it slowly evolved into a more academic paper. What was this data set? So this data set is the tax survey data set that is run annually in China. We have the data only from 2007 to 2015. It's run by the State Tax Administration and the Ministry of Finance. And basically they sample uh, about 700,000 firms a year. So this is not a full sample, but what makes the data set really interesting as compared to a lot of the other firm level data that's used, which is usually from the industrial census, is that first of all, it's not just above scale firms, which is there's usually a cutoff for which level firm, which size firms are get looked at in this data. And this includes below scale firms as well. Uh, and the second thing that's interesting is it's not just industrial firms. It also includes the services sector and agriculture as well. So which I, it makes it much more representative. Now, it, it does oversample large firms. So if you look at, you know, value added to the firms involved, it's about 70 percent of output. So it, 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 it covers a lot of a lot of the largest firms and oversamples there. But because of the sampling that they do at the lower level, we found that you can have a pretty representative sample involved. The title of this gives away some of the ultimate thesis. Picking, picking Losers, How Career Incentives Undermine Industrial Policy in Chinese Cities. Before we get into that, I wonder if you can situate the paper in the broader discussion of, uh, of industrial policy. You know, you talk about in the paper this sort of renewed interest in the efficacy of industrial policy that, of course, springs from the result of Beijing seeming to put more prominence on industrial policy as a tool for, for boosting developing and channeling capital into preferred sectors. But can you talk about where is the discussion on the efficacy or efficiency of industrial policy and where this paper slides into that? Sure. I think this is a big and, and still growing debate. Uh, China for a long time seemed to be moving towards a more market-led economy and then sometime you know, in the mid-aughts or, or in the last 10 years in particular, China has switched to much more government intervention in industrial policy. And this is, you know, this has been documented really well by people like Barry Naughton. And obviously this has been a different strategy than other East Asian developmental states, which really had a lot of industrial policy. And then as they developed and turned towards high income, switched away from this industrial policy and became more market driven. Uh, and China sort of had moved away from industrial policy and then moved back as it had more state capacity and more, more fiscal space to operate. So I think this is also part of a, a larger academic debate that even goes beyond China on, you know, should we be promoting industrial policy in advanced economies, in middle income economies? When I was at the World, started at the World Bank about a decade ago as a short term consultant, Justin Lin was the chief economist, and he was very much promoting an idea of industrial policy within uh, the development research group at the bank. And I think there was a lot of pushback, right? There was a lot of sense of, yeah, this seems to have worked in China. It's worked in some places, but you know, what sort of policies can we draw from this? Is this really efficient? Um, how distorting is it? When do we know when it's not distorting? And I think the economists had a lot of pushback from Justin Lin as chief economist there. But now today, I think there's, you know, two very opposed ideas about the role of industrial policy in China. We're both in D.C. The D.C. policy debate, I think, in the last couple of years has, has totally pivoted from a place where you had, you know, even Biden a couple of years saying, you know, China's going to eat our lunch. No way. Right. To Biden literally six months ago saying China's going to eat our lunch. So it's changed a lot. And I think right now there's a sense that China's industrial policy is what we need to follow. And then we see, of course, the Chips Act right now. The U.S. needs to engage in its own industrial policy to compete. And yet, on the other hand, if you look at growth in China, of course, growth has slowed down. But I think much more problematically for China's policymakers, what has really slowed down is productivity growth. And there's a lot of papers looking at total factor productivity, so how much you get out of the inputs you put into to growth, showing that total factor productivity growth have been maybe negative for the last decade. Really, really problematic. And so 
you know, how do you, how do you square this idea of China as having really effective industrial policy with squaring this idea of China as having a massive debt buildup on slowing productivity? So we wanted to step in there and ask, you know, is China's industrial policy working and why? And to do that, we tried to look at the local government where we thought the action was. You might not be able to answer this question, or, or but I wonder if you could take a stab at it, irrespective. How do you think planners in Beijing think about industrial policy as a tool to address some of these total factor productivity challenges? My sense is one of the reasons that so much capital is being channeled into critical and emerging technologies, robotics, AI, is precisely because they're trying to find ways to address some of these productivity challenges and overcome some of the sort of productivity headwinds. How do you think about that TFP problem in industrial policy? And what's your understanding of how policymakers in Beijing are thinking about what the function of industrial policy is and how it can address productivity issues? Yeah, I mean, I think in Beijing, policymakers, especially when industrial policy really took off, saw this as a form of industrial upgrading and boosting TFP. So I think it was directly intended to address a problem of low, low value added production and a sort of low and middle income economy and moving towards what the, the idea of an advanced economy was. In, I think the challenge is, first of all, that's tough to do, even in a, you know, in a rule of law state. It's very difficult to know how to pick winners, I think, is one challenge of industrial policy. But I think more broadly in China, there's a challenge of, as we talk about in this paper, local implementation and where the money is actually going. But even more than that, I think there's been a large problem, especially since the trade war began, of what is the purpose of industrial policy? Is it to boost total factor productivity or is it to replicate what's been done abroad so you don't have to rely on foreigners? Um, and I think those are intention. Um, you're, a, lot of, a lot of what China's doing now in some ways seems to be wasteful um, in terms of replication. I'm trying to put my, myself in the position of Chinese policymakers and thinking about tools that we have available to address some of these longstanding economic challenges. And I hear what you just say about some of the tensions that exist in, in the objectives that policymakers are trying to accomplish. But I'm also thinking, all right, I'm looking at the United States and I'm seeing that the market as an allocation mechanism seems to be channeling capital into dilettante technologies like Meta, right? Or, you know, that Twitter Things that if you leave it to a, I won't call it a pure invisible hand, but if you leave it to a broadly market-based system, there's really no assurance that your scarce capital technology and talent is going to move into the key priority sectors that will help really advance this industrial you know, upgrading in ways that you're, you're, you're ensuring that you can, you can hop skip over the middle income trap. Would that be the wrong way to think about it? I'm trying to think if I was arguing with a policymaker in Beijing, even recognizing some of the inefficiencies of industrial policy, or even as you explore in the paper, some of the structural political challenges to you know, smooth implementation, I would still be saying, yeah, but the alternative is what? You know, Meta or, or Twitter? <laughs> So, yeah, I mean, I think if we get into to U.S. policy, I can see a lot of a lot of my own complaints as well. Um, and, you know, I, to, to some degree, there's a response that has to do with antitrust and how to how to you know use actual market based institutions and, and rule of law to, to intervene and not have the same sort of outcomes that we're seeing in the U.S. But I think my, my very real response is China is not a high income economy that's facing the same challenges as the U.S. And I think that's the real challenge in, in the way we look at China. China is still a developing country, right? Uh, it is a lot poorer than the U.S. I think if there's one thing I can think of in terms of what China really needs to do if it wants to become a high-income economy, it's deal with 
education in rural areas. I think, you know, Scott Rizal and Natalie Hell's book is probably the most compelling thing you can read about why China is, is, is facing a lot of difficulties. So I think these are the real challenges China has to address. Creative destruction can really help. China is not on the technology frontier. If you look at any sector in China, except for some right at the right at the, you know, some that China has plowed so much money into at the top end in high tech, China is relatively similar to foreign foreigners in foreign countries in terms of uh, actual productivity levels. But in most domains in China, China is not on the technology frontier. It really needs to diffuse technologies to all of its firms. And there's a role for industrial policy there, too, in different ways. But it's not the same challenges that the U.S. faces. Yeah. Let's dig into the paper a bit now, but uh, I'll, I'll do that with asking yet another annoying level set question here, but which is um, thinking about the role of local government actors in industrial policy. I think you know casual observers understand that, sure, you have something like Made in China 2025 announced at the top, but of course China's system requires implementation you know, all the way down at the, the cellular level in towns, municipalities. But can you just talk a little bit about how local government actors and local governments what role do they play in design and implementation of industrial policy? That's you know an essential question to our paper. And it, sadly, in the paper itself, which is more quantitative, we don't really we, we sort of take as a given that local governments are important. But this is something that I've looked at a lot elsewhere uh, and and remain very interested in. In fact, the last field work I was supposed to do in China was supposed to be talking to innovation related officials in Hubei and in. <laughs> you know, in, in Wuhan and, and in Xiangyang, I was supposed to go in March 2020. So you can imagine that did not happen that trip uh, and probably never will. Uh, but it's still something that I, I remain very interested in. I think that, you know, the starting point for thinking about this, we talk about China as a decentralized economy, but you know, the extremes of that are really worth hammering home. China has, you know, depending on whether you count off budget revenues or not, off budget expenditures or not, about 90% of expenditure in China is at the local level. That's much higher than decentralized federations like the U.S., right, which is only 50 to 60 percent spent at the local level. Counties in China, um, which we often just overlook, counties spend as much as the center, right? So we're, we're looking at a place that is highly, highly decentralized, and, and industrial policy is really no exception. If you look at things like preferential credit or land sales that are below value or government guidance funds investments, which there's central and local arms of, uh, direct subsidies and tax breaks that we look at in this paper, most of these are, are locally determined. And if you look at even sort of the central share of investments, so Karsten Holt has a great paper on targeting investment in China. And he documents that, you know, if you look at central entities and how much investment they control, this has declined from about over 15% 20 years ago to less than 5% now, right? So just the share that the center controls in terms of investment is much lower. So I think there's both a sort of de jure in law sense that local localities can set policies for industrial policy. So in an earlier version of this paper, we could expand a little bit more. We talked about actually in Hubei, there's you know some typical examples. So there was this 50 billion renminbi fund that was established in 2017 to help industrial upgrading that was then targeted at prefectures and counties below who were then supposed to match 3 billion renminbi funds. So this was all determined and really explicit This they were in charge of this money. But that's the formal system. And then de facto, I think there's even more scope to implement tax breaks and subsidies as local governments see fit. Just hearing your answer, I, I struggle with this tension in thinking about the evolution of China's political system, which in some senses seems increasingly you know, centralized under Xi Jinping. But then you scratch the surface of that and you immediately get into this sky is high, emperor far away, just functional reality that is, as you were just, you know, as you just highlighted, just as operative and important as ever. And I don't know how to square that circle. I don't know if you do of both 
dynamics are true at the same time and yet seem totally contradictory of, you know, there, Xi Jinping does have more clout to shape outcomes than previous general secretaries. And yet at the same time, he is, he is as powerless to be able to drive real meaningful change without, without the buy-in of all these subnational actors. Maybe that isn't a tension, maybe that's, but to me, it seems like a, a little bit of a puzzle. No, yeah, I think it's definitely a tension, but I think it's also one of the key governance challenges in China, right? There's an attempt to have an upwardly accountable system where everyone, you know, does what their superiors tell them to some degree, but there needs to be scope given how much decentralization there is to actually implement policies and direct and, and create policies as fits local realities. And I think under Xi, you know, there's a sense that this has shifted towards more centralization. Um, I've done work with Kyle Jaros that looks at sort of localized cadres and how different forms of localization have decreased under Xi, more appointments of central cadres to various localities. But that paper also finds that implementation still is different between localists and centralists. And there's still a lot of scope that seems intentional from the party, from the center, to let localities somewhat do what they need to, given to, to match local local conditions. And you even see this with COVID lockdowns and you know how letting, letting localities try to determine things. Part of this is so the center doesn't have to be involved. Part of it is because localities have a lot more information. So bringing in the other piece of this, so we've got into, we've, one piece is industrial policy, the other piece is local governments as implementers and intermediaries. Now the final is thinking about what the individual level incentive structure is as broader industrial policy goals and targets are received, processed, and implemented, but critically getting, just maybe building on our last point, it is the local level actors who make many of the fundamental decisions about, does a renminbi go here or, or go here? Does it go to this firm or go to that firm? So can you pull these together now and explain where industrial policy, local governments, and the specific career incentives for local level cadres come together to shape the functional outcome of industrial policy? That, you know, that, the basic point of our paper is that there are short term career incentives that lead local officials to support old incumbent loss making large firms uh, in order to help with their promotion prospects. And so let me explain that a bit. So I think there's been a lot of research on career incentives in China. This is something I've tried to contribute to in the past as well. And I've been interested in for a long time. Now, I think there's a lot of debate in the field about the importance of economics or political connections or whatever else. There's a lot of debate, but I think there are also a lot of areas where there's pretty high degree of, of agreement. One of those areas is that short term length for, for local cadres is key. So people, party secretaries of a city or a county, they're supposed to have five year terms, but on average, their terms are two and a half years. And actually, this has been shrinking under Xi. This leads to a lot of distortions, right? Because you need to do things in your time in office that show that you can do something or that you at least don't mess up during your two and a half years in office. You're not too worried about long-term goals. And I know there have been changes under the party to make people responsible for debt accumulated under your, under your tenure, but I have yet to see any of this really have an impact. And David, can you explain just for, what is the logic behind that extraordinarily short duration of, of tenureship? Because, right, the, the longer the time in office, maybe the longer the time horizon, and therefore the, you would own mistakes that you would make, and, and so therefore that would probably shape your decisions in ways that would be more beneficial both to localities and to the center, but they're not doing that. Why? Well, I wish I knew the real answer of why. This was actually one, when I talked about this World Bank governance report we did, one of the, our key findings or, or, or asks was increase actual uh, tenure length and both both in actuality and sort of the de facto what you sort of can 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 attribute to people afterwards. But I mean, I think the real reason is that anyone in office for more than three years thinks that they've their career, their career is done. 
<laughs> is I think the short answer. And you used to see, I mean, I, I did a lot of work at, at the county level, looking at data from the 90s to, in, and through the aughts. And there were in the 90s, especially a lot of people that actually stayed a lot longer in office and you had county officials that were there for 10 years. So I think the initial idea is we want short term lengths because we don't want to create these little independent kingdoms where people do what they want. So you, you combat corruption, you combat this ability of people to have these strong local networks. So there was a top down control element of short tenure length. I think now a lot of it has to do with you want it. People that want to move to the top need to have a lot of different jobs first. They need to have the grassroots job, the functional jobs, and need to rotate through a lot of things quickly. And even then, if you if you followed term lengths, and there's a good paper in China Quarterly on this, if you followed term lengths, you could never progress to a party secretary of a province, right? You would you'd, you'd be too old. You'd, you'd age out. So you need to move through these things quickly. So it's a matter of control. And so it is the the official themselves who is pushing for a transfer, not the center reaching down and saying, all right, comrade, time for you to move on? No, I think it's, well, the center or the upper level administration is, is the one re reaching down to tell you it's time to move on. I don't think you can ask for a promotion necessarily, um, but it's just that that's the norm that's developed, right? If, if people feel like if they've been in office for longer, then they've been looked over and they're not going to progress. So I had interrupted. You were in the middle, you were you were midstream of basically saying, so we have these these shortened durations of tenureship at the local level officials. And then I think you were just about to say, and here's why that means they, they're biased towards channeling funds towards older legacy inefficient firms. Sure. Well, I think, I think, it, I think there are, to tie that idea of short-term length to, to two other areas of agreement uh, in looking at career incentives. One is instability is really bad. You're there for a short time. You don't want some massive protest or any other major problem. And this is known as sort of a veto target in China if you have levels of instability where in, in your locality. And the third is that the lower you go in the system, the more economic growth matters for, for promotion. So I do think economic growth, even though under Xi, we're supposed to see a move away from GDP warship as a target, there's still a big, a big emphasis on local economic growth. So if you combine these, local officials have a real incentive to keep, you know, Older firms that are producing a lot and are already there and have a lot of employers, employees in business. You don't want to let these firms fold uh, because that would have possible instability implications as well as negative growth shock implications. So these firms, we, 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 would, we argue, I hypothesize, have a lot of incentive to support. The local officials have a lot of incentive to support these large loss-making firms rather than new firms that really their growth wouldn't show up. As, as a big key uh, factor in a locality till after these officials have left. So we look at the, we look at the city level. I think, you know, provinces were seen as sort of a, too high up to, to be too involved and, and, and follow the same patterns. County level, I would argue, probably should yield some of the same results that we see. And so now sort of building, building on that, what is the outcome of this in terms of the broader efficacy or efficiency of industrial policy? And this situates into the broader debate about how we're defining efficacy of, of industrial policy. But what do we know about this actual structure of resource channeling as mediated through these career in, in incentives and how that is affecting the broader outcome of, of industrial policy and or effect on China's economy more broadly? So I, I guess I should be a little maybe first step back and be a little bit clearer about exactly what we try to show in the paper uh, to get to that answer. So you know, we first, the, I guess the paper has basically three elements. So the first element shows uh, using this firm level data, loss making, low productivity, old firms uh, and large firms are definitely targeted significantly much more than other firms, right? And then we show that this actually does 
lead to um, this, this is, can be correlated with promotions for local officials. We show that city level officials that are able to provide excess favors. So we define these excess as sort of deviations from the norm in these sectors and areas. Those that are able to provide more favors, more subsidies, more tax breaks are more likely to get promoted. So we're arguing this is indeed part of their, their incentive structure. And then the third part of the paper, which is in many ways the least rigorous, um, tries to get to the question you just asked, which is uh, looking at, you know, what are the overall effects on the Chinese economy from this? And so, you know, the reason that the least rigorous is that we're looking at the city sector level. And a lot of the distortions that could be arising from this sort of support would have a lot of spillovers across this sort of sector and, and jurisdictional level. So we're just trying to try provide a broad stroke analysis here. But really what we show is that, you know, even though, of course, these subsidies and tax breaks can help individual firms, and there's a lot of good papers looking at how these, these, this support helps individual firms, what are the overall distorting effects? So we look at the effects on firm entry and the effects on productivity growth. And Lauren Brandt and his co-authors have done a great paper showing that the massive slowdown in China's productivity growth is really driven by a lack of firm entry, um, the contributions of new firm entry. And so we can show that these excess favors uh, in a or the level of favors in a locality, one standard deviation greater excess favors lead, basically leads to 10% less firm entry uh, in the next year and about 80%, 80% less TFP growth. So we can show in this sort of very contained space that high levels of favors supporting these older loss-making firms, whatever it is, lead to a lot less subsequent firm entry and productivity growth. Can I ask a stupid question, David? What is the connection between channeling subsidies to an older firm and firm entry? Why does that thwart the ability of a new company to come online? Sure. Well, new companies need to be able to compete, right? And this is partially why I think the, you know, looking just at within a jurisdiction is not enough because obviously there's trade across jurisdictions. But when these old firms are there and able to produce, you know, and basically have a huge subsidy for their costs and still able to put out products at lower prices, new firms can't compete um, in these new industries. Uh, and they're also, you know, in a sense, not having access to the same the, the same benefits, right? They're not getting these subsidies that are actually supposed to be targeted to some degree at them. So it's not the subsidies per se, it's the size of the firm, right? Because if you were in the United States and you had a sector dominated by a large firm, the same constraints on new entrants would exist as well, right? Or am I missing something? No, that, that, that's correct. I think it's a little different in that the subsidies can also decrease the cost by decreasing sort of the, the, the actual output price of what's being sold by the large company. You get a larger distortion. But yeah, I think it's much harder to enter where there are large, large incumbents always, which is why, you know, which is basically the, the rationale for antitrust law when you get to the extreme. Putting ourselves in the position of a local level cadre, it totally makes sense to me that you go with you go with who you know. And, and indeed, I'm just thinking about the CHIPS Act, which was recently passed, and we can guess who's going to get the bulk of that money, right? Intel, TSMC, Samsung, not Jude Blanchett Semiconductors. And that could be, I guess, distorting, but I'm just trying to think of a way in which if you were a local level cadre and you were having to make decisions, under what realistic circumstance would you not choose a larger established firm who is already has a proven track record of employment output. It seems like I, I completely hear the point you're making, but I'm just trying to think of a realistic political universe. Even if it was the United States, I would imagine the outcomes would be largely similar. I think that's 
Right. I think one of the reasons maybe that industrial policy more broadly can be more distorting than we hope for is that it's really tough to, to pick emerging winners. It's really tough, right? Because what, what, why, why do, and, and this is why you have scientific boards or whatever else in trying to get involved in these decisions to see if someone has a great new technology and they're partnering with some research university, whatever, maybe you can find an, an emerging company that deserves a lot of these subsidies. So I think in some ways you're right that this would be seen across any industrial policy. I think one of the differences in China perhaps is the unwillingness to let the large bad firms close, right? These zombie firms. I think in the U.S., if you had a company that just was doing, you know, employed thousands of people, but had losses every single year, was not producing anything new, you would, you would at some point stop subsidizing them, right? That's not Intel. I know these may be flip side of the coin, but is the problem then market entry or is the problem market exit? Yes, I, I do think they're, they're flip sides, right? And you, you want exit of these large, especially SOEs, but a lot of them are private sector, and you want entry of, of, of new small firms, and those go together. I know this is way, 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 way outside of the scope of the paper, but wonder if we, if you wouldn't mind just playing along, which is knowing what you know now about what are some of the functional realities of implementation of industrial policy and how resources in a real world are allocated, misallocated. When you read articles about China's push into semiconductors, for example, and using, you know, throwing a lot of money at this to try to you know, leapfrog and catch up with advanced semiconductor manufacturing processes and, you know, get up to the, the, the sophistication of the United States, South Korea, and Taiwan. And I might just have been overly generous to the United States to put them in the same category as South Korea and Taiwan. But when you read that, how does that jibe with your understanding of what the lived reality is? is? Do, do you hear about these pushes into semiconductors in China and think massive amounts of waste, very little yield? Or do you have a different story? So, I mean, I think it's complicated. I think, you know, this paper obviously isn't looking by sector, right? So I think a lot of what we're looking at are not these large semiconductor firms. They're old manufacturers producing low end <laughs> or low quality, quality products. On the semiconductor side, my initial, my gut reaction is there's a ton of waste here, especially when I think about all the things that China could be investing in and should be investing in like it's, its own people, um, I think would make a lot more sense as a, on return on, on the buck for, for China's future growth. At the same time, obviously, with the trade war and ZTE and Huawei, they, China was left it thought with no choice but to develop its own capabilities, I think, having gotten locked out of, of other markets. Now, in terms of the efficiency waste side, you know, if you look at semiconductors, you have the, the big fund, right? And you're the, the second wave of it. You also have these government guidance funds at the local level, which are about the same size. There's been a ton of waste, a ton of documented waste that we know of, right? And a lot of people smarter than I have written about this and on the semiconductor side. But, you know, in the last couple of years, we've had over 10, $10 billion, 10 billion renminbi plus projects just fail, go up. And so, you know, and these in some ways are very different from the one looking at in the paper, because a lot of these are new firms that are just fraud. They're fraudulent. There's nothing going on there. But then you also have, you know, the SMIC, the SMIC developments, and now they're at seven nanos and the New York Times is raving about their ability that we didn't think they'd be able to get to. So there's obviously, if you put enough money into something with enough smart people involved, there will be some returns. So if you're thinking about this in sort of the competitive space of US and China, I can see why we would think that China's doing well from some of this waste, right? If you think about it from a purely economic standpoint, to me, it just seems like waste. Just trying to sort of tie this together and... Again, I'm asking you to roam outside of the, you know, the, the confines of the paper, but I think your paper just raises a lot of interesting questions about policy discussion seems to be dominated by the, the uh, intentions of the plan, the scale of the plan, the amount of money being put behind it, but then it's 
there's this whole then next you know second third fourth act which is then how does this money filter through the system i'm trying to understand a bit about how do we think and again just humor me how do we think that government actors assess performance and outcome of of what they're doing so at the local level i'm steering money towards you know uh, bullman inc ostensibly as a part of this industrial policy drive but really i'm i'm going to be out the door in a year and a half and what i'm trying to do is Bowman Inc. is a significant provider of employment in, in the area. It's a known quantity. Um, I've got good connections there. Uh, maybe they'll feather my nest in, in, some, in some way, so I'm steering money to them. Where is their accountability in this process at all that, that we know about? And is that just sort of they'll do a s- sector-wide analysis later on to see are they, are they going in the right direction, or is it just about money being spent? Do we know anything about where accountability or oversight comes into this? You mean in terms of how <laughs> accountability for giving money to your friends and the, the corruption side, or no? I meant, I meant, I meant as a spender. I'm, I, where within this whole system is someone looking to see or bang for buck in terms of where we're channeling money, right? So you've, the story you've tell is quite, quite convincing about how how incentive structures intersect with industrial policy, and I'm just trying to figure out who who in the chain of command is assessing this and looking at this to see or bang for buck for, for these investments? I mean, that's, <laughs> that's a great question that I wish I had a better answer to. I think, you know, I, in the shift recently, so our paper only goes through 2015. And I think there's a sense maybe that the, the explosion in government guidance funds and all this, this new sort of semi-VC type government investment is very new and not captured by our data. And I think within those funds, there's a sense that there should be more accountability, right? They should be looking where this money is going and you have a more private sector-based sort of management and board. You know, at the local level, from what I can tell, I'm not sure who's, 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 who's providing this accountability. My research earlier on looked at sort of the power of party secretaries at the local level. You know, when the, the EBA show, whatever they say basically goes. And I, I don't really see much change under Xi that that's still the case. Yes, you have more inspections from CCDI and there's more fear of, of operating and doing the wrong thing. But I think there's still very little accountability for what goes on. And there's a lot of research beyond what, you know, beyond this paper. That looks at cycles uh, and political career incentives for how you support various firms and corruption. My own colleague, interestingly, my own colleague, Ling Chen, who I should give a plug to, was working on concurrently a very similar paper looking at tax breaks and, and cycles using some earlier data and showing that you give a large amount of tax breaks to major firms your first year in office to sort of get things going. And so, you know, I think there's, there's very little oversight of that. And as long as, you know, everyone's happy locally, it, it sort of it keeps going. And I think this ties into a lot of the literature that's been looking at corruption and, and trying to understand what corruption is and whether it's, you know, access money, as, as Yun Yun Ang has talked about, which is not necessarily the, the sort of typical bribe we th- bribery we think of, or special deals that Chongun Bai and Michael Song and others have worked on. I think it, that's how I, I look at a lot of this in terms of that's where the accountability is. It's back and forth between the, the, the that is in some ways pro-growth, um, but it's a very collusive environment between large firms and local governments. I know it doesn't exist, but I've always wondered and, and thought that the Communist Party should have some research office 
research governance office, which is reading foreign academic studies of how their system works and turning those into recommendations for improvements of efficiency, process, and outcome. And I thought of that with the, with the work on authoritarianism, that really, if they were smart, they'd be reading all these, and Xi Jinping would have a sort of a evolving playbook of how to be a better authoritarian based, based on all the work that's happening. But, you know, I wouldn't be surprised if that existed. <laughs> um, I just, final question, what are the kind of, you know, thinking about the state of the research on industrial policy or China's political economy, what, what to you are the kind of outstanding puzzles or, or sort of future questions that, that you'd like to, to tackle? Well, I, mean, I think one question is how much, is how much are things changing? And I think so much of, of what, you know, academics look at is out of date, right? We look, this paper is looking through 2015. A lot of papers are still using the industrial census data, which just doesn't get updated for, for, for researchers anymore. Um, and we can't do fieldwork anymore for foreigners, right? So I think that there's a lot that, you know, we expect that the system has shifted under Xi. I've seen in academic research that it's shifted a lot less than I would expect in terms of some of this governance and central local relations. But I want to explore that more. I want to know how the party is shifting because these part of these problems are known. You see all this intentionality to address some issues of implementation at the local level. So how is this changing? I think is really, really important. But I, I'm really just interested in broadly this idea of China's transition to a high income economy. And I think there's still so many open questions on how, where China is a middle income economy that needs to address middle income problems and where China is a high income economy. And I try to think about the governance and economic challenges through those sorts of lenses. What is the way you approach research going to look like? Moving forward now that, you know, again, I'm looking at the trajectory of U.S.-China relations, it looks unlikely that, and indeed looking at the trajectory of China's political system, it seems unlikely that they're going to throw open the doors for foreign barbarian researchers to come in and roam around the country. How is that affecting the way that you, you and your, your colleagues are thinking about sort of questions you can approach and can't approach in, in, a, in a new environment? Yeah, I mean, it's a, a affecting a, a lot, and I don't think necessarily in positive ways. You know, personally, I've started to look much more at, I think a lot of people tried to look much more at global China, what China's doing abroad. And I think that's great, and there's so much going on. There's a great level of research there, but it means that fewer people are focusing on what's going on in China itself, which is a problem. A lot of people are focusing more on using big data that can be gleaned from social media, which I think is excellent again, but can lead to some biased sort of findings based on the populations that use social media. Uh, a lot of people are trying to run surveys, myself included, that itself has even gotten much more difficult in terms of who will run these surveys. So, you know, I think that it's a problem. We're not getting the same access and therefore able to ask some of the same questions. And, you know, hopefully things open up to some degree, but yes, I do not expect that either. So I think people are making long-term plans that don't involve China opening up right now. David, on that really optimistic note, uh, <laughs> no, I, I want I thank you very much. I, I it seems like precisely the time where it's going to become more imperative to understand, you know, what's going on in China um, is precisely the time where it's becoming harder to understand what's going on in China. And and I would imagine vice versa. You know, I'd imagine China feels a little bit more at the margin, deaf and blind to what's happening, you know, here in the United States. So very worrying beyond just the confines of academia, just for the broader project of you know, mutual compre comprehension. Thank you very much for, for the conversation today. It just did, it's an excellent, excellent paper. And we'll put a, in the show notes, we'll, we'll have a link. Um, we'll have a link to it. And I think it's ungated. I forget. But um, there are various ways, by the way, uh, Sci-Hub, wink, wink, that folks who want to find a way to get a copy of papers without spending the $900 to subscribe to journals can, can do so. I, I think, unfortunately, it is blocked, but people care or gated, but people can feel free to email me as well if they're interested. Okay. All right. All right. Uh, David, thank, thank you very much. And uh, thanks for joining the podcast. Thank you so much. It was my pleasure. 
If you enjoyed this podcast, check out our larger suite of CSIS podcasts. From Into Africa, The Asia Chessboard, China Power, The Trade Guys, Smart Women, Smart Power, and more. You can listen to them all on major streaming platforms like iTunes and Spotify. Visit csis.org slash podcasts to see our full catalog 